I would tell them, prepare like their life depends on it. So whatever it is that they, they want next, prepare now as if they're doing it now. And it's really, it's really hard. And you've got to really love it. And you're going to have to like suck it up for a period of time. And um, life won't be like as comfortable while you transition. Welcome to The Climb, Crossroads and Defining Moments. Today, Mike and I had the pleasure of sitting down with Chet Scott, the founder and builder at Built to Lead. Uh, This was definitely a special conversation for me because Chet is not only my leadership coach and builder, but he's also a good friend. Over my years in working with Chet, uh, he's transformed not only my work life, but my personal life. And like I said, become a good friend and by far one of my best truth tellers. Built to Lead's goal is simple, to awaken, challenge, and transform individuals, teams, and leaders. Enjoy today's podcast, and thank you for joining us. Chet, welcome to The Climb. We appreciate you joining us today. It's good to be with you. So we'll, we'll start off with one of our first questions that we like to ask some of our guests uh, as we talk about kind of some of your passions in your life. Uh, when we talk about passions, say number one and two, a lot of people respond with their family and their friends as their passions. If you go to your third and fourth passions, what would you say those are? I don't know if it would be third or fourth. <laughs> you know, um, my work and life are my passions. And so I don't really think about a one, two, three, or four. Like, I don't do anything that I don't want to do. So when somebody asks me, like, well, what are your priorities? I'm like, I don't really have them. What are your passions? Uh, Well, just hang out with me. You'll see. (laughs) So uh, I'm passionate about everything I do. So this morning I worked up on the – I worked on the driveway where I saw a young client of mine recently – epically failed. I was out there with a bunch of old 60-year-olds and we were purposely failing building our core stronger and and trash talking. One guy threatened to hit me, um, <laughs> now, which was great. Now, I've been out on that driveway for the workouts. So I don't think I threatened to hit you, did I? No, you did. You, you were crumbling <laughs> too quickly. <laughs> you didn't I, have had no, I had no strength re- left. No strength, <laughs> so you couldn't. Uh, but, you know, I'm passionate about that. And then I had a practice at 17, 7.15 right after with a business owner that's struggling, and I'm passionate about helping him. And then I just had a team practice with another team, and then I spent a little time having a meal with my bride, and, and I'm passionate about that. And now here I am with you folks, and I wouldn't be here if I didn't want to be here. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, and so... To give everybody a little background, maybe start with kind of where you came from to your start of your career and then get to where you are now today, and then we'll definitely dive in a lot deeper to where you are today. How far back do you want me to go? As much as it helps to tell the story. I know the story, so enlighten our listeners and Michael. start from the beginning. Well, so I grew up in Kansas, born and raised. Probably the most, the start of this journey was leaving high school. And I remember 
I went to a private school in Indiana. I didn't know anybody. All my buddies were going to KU. I was going to go to KU and play golf. Last minute, I decided to take a flyer and go to this little private Christian school called Taylor University in Indiana. I just thought I needed to get a new circle of friends, even though I had great friends. I just felt like I needed to do something a bit different. And so I did, not knowing a soul. And before I left, I remember my mom sitting me down and telling me she was a really great role model. She said, Chester, go out there, have fun, meet new friends, learn some new stuff, and just remember you're not coming back. And she was very much like, and I, and I knew she meant it. There was no opportunity to come back. So it was a great defining moment that I was going out and I was on my own. And it grew up. And so when I played golf for four years, had no idea what I wanted to do. I just knew I loved competing. And so IBM was the place to work as far as technology. And I thought, I want to compete in the technology field because that sounds interesting to me. Even though I wasn't technical, it just it seemed like the future. And so I interviewed at IBM, shockingly got the job. And uh, after a year, they introduced this thing called the PC, 1982. And I was joining them to sell the big iron, the big gear. Millions of dollars of computers. That's where all the money was and where all the fun was. The PC was like a $1,200 consumer product. And they told all us newbies that we were going to go work in a retail store selling those as part of our training. I didn't want to do it. Then they wanted to move us. I've been moved. They asked us to move. I didn't want to do that. They said, well, if you don't want to do that and you don't want to move, you're fired. And so I quickly got, I had my, my mom gave me a, a wake-up call in the high school. My first job one year in, I had my first wake-up call from my first employer. It didn't matter what I wanted to do. They had a plan. You either buy into the plan or you're fired. And so I joined this startup called CompuServe, who I'd been interviewing with because I kind of smelled this coming from IBM. And the next day I started there and I'd spend 20 years living and working with a bunch of young people. And we basically grew up together. And we sold electronic mail before there was such a thing. We sold networking of computers together before there was such thing. I remember going into Wendy's. My first big client was Wendy's. I sold them electronic mail. They thought it was the best thing since the cheeseburger. <laughs> I mean, they had never sent an electronic mail message until we walked in there and showed them how to do it, got their executives doing it. Then they started, Dave Thomas wanted to know if he could get sales data from every store every day. And we're like, yeah, you can do that. We'll, we'll show you how. And so we were selling technology, but we were solving problems, really. And I, I enjoyed that. So I learned quickly that you don't have to sell. I didn't sell anything, really. I just went in and competed by simply telling the truth, working hard for the client, and delivering them something of value. And I remember Red Roof Ends was my second really big client. They were also in town here. And I had been calling on a company called Adria Labs. This is 
It's amazing what the mind remembers. This is 1984. We didn't have a fit for them. And I remember going into the CTO and telling him, you know, hey, we've done some analysis on what you want. We met like four or five times. His name was Jeff Winslow. I still remember the guy's name. And he said, that's it? He goes, you don't have anything else? I said, no. I said, we can't help you. I said, but if anything changes, you know, I'll, I'll keep you in the loop. But right now you're better off just buying a dedicated network. AT&T can provide you that. We can't touch what you're doing. I walked away. Well, I've been calling on Red Roof Ends forever because they needed us. And I knew it. And I, I knew we could help them. Their CTO would not even talk to me. Couldn't get in the door. This went on for like a year and a half. And I didn't give up. I kept calling on them. Nothing. Well, never got anywhere. So a year and a half after I told Jeff Winslow we couldn't help him, I get a call from Jeff Winslow. I said, Jeff, what the heck are you doing? He said, I haven't talked to you forever. And he goes, well, he goes, I just got a new job. And he goes, I'm convinced this one, we, we need you guys. I'm like, really, where'd you go? And he goes, Red Roof then. Touchdown. <laughs> and they became a client the next day. And I remember calling my mom saying, man, I don't understand this sales thing. I said, it is not complicated. She goes, what do you mean? I said, I'm making sales. The company keeps promoting me and telling me I'm doing a great job. Mom, all I do is go out and talk to people and tell them the truth. That's all I do. And that's still the case. And that's all I do now as a builder of individuals, teams, and leaders. I'm still getting paid to tell people the truth. So, Chet, before we get, we go down that kind of the built-to-lead path, maybe share a little bit, too, because you've shared with me over the time uh, we've worked together some of your stories of being you know, a younger manager at CompuServe. So maybe share a little bit about that, because I know I've gained a lot of guidance from that over the years of you sharing, uh, going through similar circumstances that I've gone through in my career. Well, I'm not sure which stories you're talking about as a manager. There's a million. As a young manager, I became a manager the same year we had a baby, 25. Everybody in the office, there was only eight or 10 of them. It was a small office, but everybody was a decade or more older than me. So I learned a lot as a 25-year-old about leading up. And it took me a while to get comfortable with telling a 40-year-old that he needed to take his performance up and that I could help him if he wanted help, or if not, I'd help him get another job. And I learned a lot about human nature just by the nature of the way people reacted to me simply because of my age. And so as a leader, you know, I learned that you will be judged by your cover. And you have to get over that, make your peace with that, and judge your team by their performance. And that if people judge you mistakenly based on the way you look or how old you are or whatever else, like you got to just like a part of being a leader is knowing that there are no equal partnerships. And you have to be the, the bigger person. You have to lead. And, uh, and let other stuff go. So I learned that one quickly. Long in the term, so that's my first one. 
probably my last leadership lesson was I had a front row seat to the biggest financial collapse at the time in U.S. business history. Um, WorldCom acquired us, CompuServe, 1998, and we were acquisition 54. 55 was MCI. And that's the one that killed them. And I can remember going to Jackson, Mississippi, alongside our CEO. We were their fastest of all their, at the time then they had 57 companies that they owned. They bought two more after MCI. And we were the fastest growing of all of them. And so Bernie wanted to meet the guy running sales and service and the CEO of that company. Uh, and so we went down, flew down to Jackson, Mississippi. You ever been there? I have, but I've been there, but on the way to Florida. So it was kind of a, a pit stop. Yeah, that's, that's not all it's good for. It's not a place you go except to go somewhere else. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but we went there, and have I, having said that, I remember the place we went to lunch. I remember everything about their office. I remember the airport. So there's a whole bunch of stories that came in one day. But the biggest leadership lesson was I went down there. We were a team of 13,000 salespeople. I ran a group that was only 650, but we were, we were the most productive per associate. That's why you wanted to talk to us. 13,000. We were calling on the same client. Our biggest competitors were the six other WorldCom sales division. There was no outside threat. We didn't know what we were doing. We were just all over each other. There was no clarity. It was pure chaos. And most of these people were not technically savvy. They were former people selling voice, and now we're in the world of the internet. And they were clueless. So it was a fiasco. So I went down just matter-of-factly, and I had a one-pager for Bernie. I thought, spelled it out. And I laid it out for him, laid him out the org. And bottom line, I said, 13,000, you could cover the market with three. And here's the way I would organize, if I were you, the channels to hit all the markets, but really mitigate the channel conflict that right now is costing you and your shareholders bajillions of dollars. I said, so you got to get rid of 10,000 of us, and you can get rid of me. You don't need six guys running the channels. Pick one, go with it. He looked me in the eye and he said, he goes, Chester, I refuse to leave the dance without the boys that brought me like a southern boy he had a cigar hanging out of his mouth and he said that i said all right and on at the airport i got on a payphone there were no cell phones then i got on a payphone and i called my broker and i said tomorrow morning sell all my options and he did and within 18 months the stock was 90 the day i sold within 18 months it was under 10 and it was under a dollar in two years and so he ended up laying off 30,000 people. And long story short, dying in prison from government fraud. And I guarantee you he was not the problem. Bush made an example out of him because Enron and Tyco had happened right prior. And he basically told the Fortune 1000, if I catch somebody else doing this, I'm throwing away the key. I can't tell you how much I learned from that. I could tell you five more stories from that trip. But let's just leave it at that one. 
And so when you were you were at, I guess it would be WorldCom at the time, is when you went to the the leadership conference, right? That you didn't want well, to go I was to. At, yeah, Center for Creative Leadership. That was in 1993. So WorldCom had not bought us yet. I was still at CompuServe. Yeah. And that's when the light bulb went off that I was there for a week and these crazy docs videotaped us. We had a, we had a guy running the GM division, really old dude, guy running the Tennessee Valley Authority, four-star general, some other old, everybody was old. And then here's 34 year old me and everybody hated it. I loved it. <laughs> they videotaped us when we didn't know it. They, they, um, they watched you behind one way mirrors. They had a psychologist with your personality type, basically watching you nonstop and you didn't know it. At the end of the whole week, they gave you a VHS tape three hours long telling you everything about you. And I walked out of them and said, I want to do what those people did. And I went back to our CEO, send everybody. He's like, it's too expensive. And I said, okay, then I'm going to start in a room. And he said, no, you're too expensive to do that. We'll have HR do it. I said, nobody will listen to HR. So let me delegate a lot of my stuff to, I got two great guys. Let me delegate to them and I'll start this up. I'll still oversee the, Okay, but let me do this because I'm going to leave one day and go do this. And the longer you let me do it here, the longer you'll get the benefit from me being here. So he did. And I would do that for nine more years. And I really just started to, I cut my teeth learning in the corporate world how to build leaders and teams. And it was really good learning. But I didn't know diddly in 2002 when I started Built to Lead about how to lead individuals and how problematic individuals that don't know how to lead themselves really are. When you said, you know, leaders are judged by their cover, um, that, that kind of piqued my interest because similar to you uh, early on in my career, uh, and it was interesting because there, there weren't Zoom calls like this, so everything was done over the phone. And I came into a new leadership sales position where I was managing about 25 other sales executives across the U.S. And I never met them. They had never seen me before. This was before you could look people up on, you know, Google or LinkedIn or whatever. Until six months later at the National Sales Conference that they all realized they had been being told what to do by this 25-year-old and they had no idea. I was so young and and telling them what to do because I could, I guess, you know, I was being judged by my cover, but my cover was that they, they couldn't see me and they didn't know how old I was. So, I mean, for our listeners, how, how, how would you advise people to, to understand they are going to be judged by their cover, but, you know, make the most of it? I don't have short answers and I don't have hacks. I'm not a guy who teaches people how to work their way around it. The reality is, is that the world, humans rush to judge. That's just a fact of human nature. And if you're in a position of power or authority, they rush to judge you even more. And if you don't look the part, sound the part, or act the part in their mind, they are going to judge you and you will be left wanting. They're going to go, 
he's just a 25-year-old punk because that's the way they are. And so I always tell my clients that, by the way, I dress like this all the time on purpose. It is exactly the way I like to dress. I have on jeans and a t-shirt, and I am judged by that. Some clients have told me many times, Chet, we want you to follow our dress code. I tell them, no, thank you. I will show up in my clothes that I wear, and I will let you, by the way, wear whatever you'd like. And you judge me by my work, and I will judge you by the work you do, and we will transform together, or we will not work together. I'm not here to transact with you. I'm here because I'm here to transform you, and I want you to transform me. And so I have found that being just truthful and just sticking to it, you get exactly the kind of clients, the kind of circle, the kind of friends, the kind of teammates that you deserve. There's a law of physics that is mass attracts mass. So I tell my clients, be strong in your core. Build a really massive core, a really strong sense of self, and then just go be it. Again, you don't have to remember who you are. When you know who you are, you just go out and be who you are. The world is out there judging you by a book cover because they're hiding behind some cover. You just got to accept that. Along that line, I mean, that, that ability to be so comfortable in your own skin, I, mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it seems like that takes a little bit of, or a lot of conviction and confidence in, in really who you are. So what are some of the, the tactics or paths that you go down to to gain that confidence because a lot of people don't have that coming out of the gates right they're trying to figure that out that is our work so when i tell you you have to build a strong core there's there's basically three elements that make up the melody line of all the nuance of the work that we do at build Food. three things you boil it all down to first thing we're going to do with our client is get them comfortable in their own skin by making them right. What do they believe? Their worldview. What are the names they call themselves? Their identities. What are the principles on which they want to stand? That's their WIP, the first three elements of the six-pack. What are their passions? What do they love? And what are their core purposes? Their big whys for working and living. And then the sixth element, what is their process for tightening it up? So the first element for getting comfortable in your own skin is doing a lot of work inside your own skin and figuring all these things out. And we make clients write and write and write and write some more. And then we, then we look at how they act and we gradually help them close integrity gaps where they believe one thing and behave another. And as they do that, they start to get confident that some bitch. I think I got this figured out. You know what I mean? I think I know who I am, the way I want to be, and I think I'm going to wear jeans and a t-shirt and see what happens. Then, you know what? I believe in God. I think I'm going to just start talking about that because that's who I am. And they do that. And you know what? You know, I think I want to be very selective in who I work with. And so they do that. And second, so they get strong in their core. And you know when you run into somebody who's strong in their core. They're not easily moved. That's a good thing. 
once we get them there, then we have them, okay, well, let's, you're not meant to labor in vain. I believe you're meant to labor towards something that you love. So opus is a Latin word that translates to the English word work, no different than labore. Translates to the English word work. And so we help our clients author an opus and an aim for their work and their life that they love. And as they get real clear that they're authoring an opus, not doing an exercise, this is not something you check off. This is something you live. They get a core that they live. They get an opus that they live and aim for in their work and life. And they're like going, this is like living the dream. All right. I don't have a single client who has done those two big, hard jobs, who's really done it, and then told me, Chet, that was a waste of time. I wish you just left me laboring, making really good money, doing what I didn't like, because I'm a lot more miserable now that I know who I am and know why I'm going after the life I want. Nobody's ever said it. And I've had, I've had people do crazy things, crazy, like leave some of the most successful family businesses in the world to go do something that they loved. They weren't even sure they could get a loan. They did it anyway. Couldn't stop them because they got so strong in their core. So we help our clients get a strong core, clear opus, and then we help them build the discipline of productive action. That dreaming without doing is daydreaming. We build clients that dream and do. So we get strong core, clear opus, the playbook of productive action. And those are really the rest of the things we nuance into that. But that's what we do to help people figure it out. And that's our life's work. First, I want, I want to make sure before we go on, Chet, when you come to my wedding in May, are you going to put a, a suit and tie on? Are we going to see that then? Is that going to be a moment? No. I have, <laughs> I, I do have, an, I have a wedding and funeral outfit. <laughs> that's it. But it's not a suit. I do have an outfit and there's no tie, but there is a dark kind of sporty jacket okay, that I perfect. wear with jeans that are dark but look like pants. <laughs> All right, good. <laughs> but they are, they do, they do. I get away with it. People really actually like it. Bob, if Chet's not wearing his suit, then I'm wearing my Wada Vera and showing up like I know what I'm doing. <laughs> there you, know. you go. Yeah. Whatever that, it takes, Dave. That'll work. Chad, before we jump into anything else, I just it just hit me because uh, you know I'm I'm a big believer in things happen for a reason, and we're all talking today on on my grandfather's what would be his hundredth birthday, and he I, you know without knowing it, I think he was a big core guy too, and he used that word uh, opus. I remember, I can't remember exactly what grade it was, maybe fifth or sixth grade, and I had to make like a a family crest for a history class or something. I called him up and I said, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm trying to put this, this family crest together. You know, I need like a saying at the bottom. I mean, you, you got any advice for me? And he said, illegitimate non-carborindum. I'm like, well, okay, what, what does that mean? He said, it's Latin for don't let the bastards grind you down. So <laughs> if you want to talk about core strength, I mean, you think about life at every turn, there's somebody trying to discredit what you're doing. And so, you know, sixth grade, that became my, my family crest creed and I've, I've stuck to it ever since. That's a good one. I like it. Yeah. I like it. He was a hell of a man. 
Well, Chad, I want I have to go back. I can't pass up you working for nine years when you decided, you know, you spent time, you thought about built to lead or doing something to that effect, but you spent nine years. Talk to us a little bit about that and uh, what took you so long to make the jump to, to going out on your own? Well, lots of things, but I would say at the root of it, fear. And by the way, that's what stops most humans from living the dream. So it took me nine years to get the courage up to do it. And part of that fear was the fear of that I wouldn't be able to make a go of it financially. Like I had a great job, made good money. I had a membership to Mirfield. I had all kinds of executive perks, you know, stock options. Like I told you, I had all kinds of things that were like making me think like, if I go on my own and I do this labor of love, there's no guarantee I'm making any money. Like I got no salary. <laughs> I have no clients. I just have this big dream. So I would say fear, fear and fear. And the good news was that I stepped into it and, and I just started reading. See the books here. I have, I have books flooded in this library and flooded outside. I just started studying what makes individuals, teams, and leaders click, and why are there so few that transition well. And I started studying history, and I just started consuming information to form my own hypothesis about human systems. And so I began to become a student of it right away so that I was preparing myself for when I did get courage to leap, I would be prepared. And so I didn't just sit there and do what I was currently doing. I had the courage to tell my CEO, I'm going to leave to go do this. Let me do it here. I had some courage, but I didn't have complete courage to jump. It actually ended up being really healthy because I, I learned more from watching the Worldcom destroy than I did from watching and participating in all the years of building it up. I'm a much better builder of individuals and teams and leaders now because of what I learned from that. So when you have, you know, we talked to a lot of different people and especially in the light of this podcast and what we're doing, business owners, entrepreneurs that are going out and doing their own, what advice would you give those folks that are, have that little piece in their mind that's saying, Hey, maybe I want to go do something on my own. What would you tell them or how would you tell them to think about that and approach it? I would tell them prepare like their life depends on it. So whatever it is that they, they want next, prepare now as if they're doing it now. And it's really, it's really hard. And you've got to really love it. And you're going to have to like suck it up for a period of time. And um, life won't be like as comfortable while you transition. I'm writing a book called Becoming Built to Lead. It's, I, I finished it six months ago. It's a daily reader, like a daily stoic. It's a daily reader for more or less built to lead clients, but I'm sure others will read it to walk somebody through a 365 day, you know, how do you master this thing we call life? And it's a, it's a life's work for me, if you will. But I finished it six months ago 
sent it to the editors. I got it back 10 days ago. It was shit. <laughs> I called up the editor and I said, what did you do? I said, what do you mean? I'm like, it's longer now than when I sent it to you. I said, You're, you were supposed to be editing it and shrinking it. That's your profession. That's what I've been told. And they said, well, we love your words and, and we think it needs to be said. And I'm like, nobody loves my words, um, you know, for long. Nobody wants to read more than one page a day. Every, this can't fly. And I said, tell me exactly how many words it has to be and I'll shrink it. I'll edit it. And so 10 hours a day for about the last 10 days, I've been like a zombie because I've been doing my work. And in between, I've been rewriting 365 rants. I have 13 left. And it's going to be really, really good. It's way better now. But I had to do a lot more work. And my wife looked at me like, man, I can't wait for you to be finished with this. Where have you been? <laughs> and that's the way it is. If you're going to be a pro in anything, I would tell your listeners that what nobody tells you is there's millions of hours that nobody sees that allow you to do something effortlessly appearing appears to be. And like effort counts more than anything. And preparation, so your effort is productive. It, there's no way around it. And, well, we coach athletes as well as business owners and professionals. And I'm amazed how many athletes have terrible prep. It's unbelievable. These are D1, really world-class athletes. And when you study their preparation habits, you can see the ones that are going to make the Olympics, you can see them clear as a bell. They, they're no different. They're no more talented or skilled, but they prepare more consistently and they stay longer after practice, more consistently to get the coach to help them with that one thing that they need to master. It's hard freaking work. And um, I've worked with the wrestling team at Ohio State for six years. I've been practicing one-on-one -on -one with the coach for six years. Nobody's ever interrupted us. We meet right there in the gym. His office is right off the wrestling room. Nobody's ever come to get us and interrupt us. None of his athletes have ever interrupted us, with the exception of one. One interrupted us on three or four occasions that I recall. He would come rap on the door. Crap, he would go over there. Kyle, what do you need? Well, there's nobody in the gym and I need somebody to spot me. And so we would go down there and this guy would be lifting like 800 million pounds. And I'm like, I can't spot this, but I mean, I'll stand here just so you feel better. And he would do like one squat or one press or whatever it was. And then we would go back. And he was the youngest world champion in the history of the United States. He was the youngest Olympic gold medalist in the history of the United States in wrestling. And I guarantee you, it was not because he was the most talented. No way. He was not. But he loved it. He loved it. And he was good enough that the fact that he loved it, he worked his ass off way harder than anybody and just got incrementally better and better and better and better. And Kelsey Mitchell had the chance to work with her. She's 
number two um, player taken in the WNBA three years ago. She'll be a star. Same exact stuff. Like you would just watch her practice habits. Everybody's done. And I'd say, Kelsey, what are you doing? She goes, well, I got to shoot this three again. And I'm like, oh, yeah, what do you, why? She goes, I missed three from this area last game. So she'd get the coach, and she'd sit there until she made 10 in a row, take a break, 10 more in a row. She wouldn't stop till she made 20 in a row. And this is like nobody tells you. Like, it's just a freaking grind that you better fall in love with. Yeah. We've talked about that with, you know, like somebody like a Kobe Bryant and talking about how before before the team had come to practice, right, Kobe would be already worked up into a sweat because he was the first guy in the gym and he was working on just his fundamentals. It's amazing. I just read that book. It's called Why the Best are the Best. My One of my basketball coaches wanted me to read it because it's got a bunch of basketball stories. And Kobe's in there. And the best story about Kobe was this guy was watching him for the Olympics back years ago. He was the best player in the world then. And this, uh, this guy was, was shadowing him to like running, you know, running through his training at six, six in the morning. And, um, he showed up at like five 30 and Kobe's out there doing other drills on his own. And when he finished, he said, what are you doing? It was just working on like crossover moves, like fundamental moves, like from junior high. And the guy said, how long are you doing? He goes, two hours. He goes, how often do you do it? He goes, five days a week. And he goes, you're the number one player in the world. You're practicing a move that we taught kids in junior high. That's all you're doing for two hours. Why in the world are you doing that? And then he said, why do you think I'm number one in the world? <laughs> yeah when you're gonna call yourself black mamba you better be willing to put in the work yeah no have doubt y'all read, have y'all read relentless oh yeah that's yeah. another good one that really highlights his work ethic it's it's pretty phenomenal that should not be far from my head i'm surprised it's usually right here i must have pulled that out because i usually have his relentless ones in here with my um uh, oh yeah, here it is. There we go. Yeah. I've got all my crazy sport books right back there. That guy is that guy's nuts. I mean, MJ's nuts, yep. but his trainer's freaking nuts. For for our listeners that aren't as familiar with, with Built to Lead, I mean, you, you've given us a lot of the, the build-up to it, <clears throat> some of the defining characteristics of you know call it the 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 platform or the program and i know my co-host bob wirma is part of this i mean i just got to ask what in the world did you see in bob like <laughs> was this just part of the charity week or something like walk walk me through just so i can know him a little bit better from your perspective like why is Bob a good candidate and why would other people be? This will be good truth telling for me now too. Yeah. Why is Bob a good candidate? Dave Lockton hired me the year he became CEO. He had the humility to read a really bad first playbook from Built to Lead. I mean, it was bad. Here's the playbook that replaced it. 
um, today. This is the 12, and it, get it online. It's nice. It's pretty. It's got color. You know, it's like it's like pretty good. This is what we have now. The one he got, it was like this. <laughs> Just a piece of paper. It was like it was like, and it was like stapled together with like a paper, a fancy paper over it with like a built to leave insignia on it. And he did not judge the book by the cover. He read it and he called me after reading it and said, I read your, your workbook and it seems like you do some pretty good work. Would you work with me? So the reason we're working with Robert is because Lockton has a history of being led by human beings who believe in this stuff. And you've, when I started with Lockton, it was, I remember Mike Frost, it was 650 people company-wide, just hit a hundred million. It's now over 8,000, 2 billion. Organic. So why I'm working with Robert is because you guys both work for a very healthy example of a built-to-lead company. And, and Robert exudes a willingness to work. So he works, and I've studied the way he works his process with his clients, and he, he does the work on this process we call Built to Lead. He doesn't half-ass anything. And those are, you know, our, our best clients fit the same kind of a profile. And, and it's the same with best athletes. It's, again, it comes down to like, are you passionate about it? Do you have a big dream for it? And are you willing to do the work? And Dave Lockton was humble to want to go through this. And I've grinded him. Every client I have is, takes a lot of humility. There are very few CEOs and business owners or people like Robert who have the fastest trajectory to um, many, plat uh, many um, milestones at Lockton. The young age, most of these guys are just arrogant, pompous asses. And the last thing they want to do is have some 61-year-old tell them they don't know anything and here's what you really need to do. So it's as much on why did I select him as why did he select me? And it's very much of a mutual partnership that we've formed that I'm going to require you to do a lot of things you don't have to do. And Robert doesn't. I think, Michael, one, one of the things like that with Built to Lead is this constant state of being uncomfortable. So for the last however many years, Chet and I have worked together, this uncomfortable of like really digging deep into who you are and why you're here. And I was writing to Chet this work this weekend, just talking about what's my purpose? Why do I exist? What is what does that mean? And then, you know, why do we even talk about that when it comes to work? Right. Like most people think it's an eight to five. You come, you go to work, you come home, you can pay the bills. And that just wasn't working for me. And so when I started working with Chet and understanding that, I mean, I can tell you my last two years have been two of the best years in my career I've had at Lockton. And I don't think it's on accident. I think it's because I'm putting all of that work <laughs> in and Chet's not uh, not easy on me. So that's definitely uh, having that push is something that's been really helpful for me. Yeah. Are you still working on your physical core? I am. See, I believe him. Because he came here, 
Michael, he came here and he was a 35-year-old failure. I mean, the good thing is we can edit stuff out, but go ahead, Chet. He was a 35-year-old <laughs> failure in front of a bunch of old men, and I embarrassed him and pissed him off because I told him, my God, you're weak. And this is unbelievable that you've built such a strong BTL core and you've left this physical one. You've blamed it on quarantine or whatever else. We call <laughs> and, and Anais and I were laughing as she called me, I don't know when it was, a few weeks ago and said, it's so funny. Bobby got so mad when he told me about what he said. <laughs> she goes, I've been saying the same thing. But ever since she told him that, he's in yoga and Pilates, and he's been doing his core work. That's a hallmark of somebody that's going to become built to lead. The humility to hear hard truth, not like it, get a little pissy, you know, then go back and go, is there truth to it? There was. He had to admit that he's not been working his core at the same level, and he changed it. So the, we call that an integrity gap, where he believed core work was important, but when it got uncomfortable, quarantine, he didn't behave in alignment. He decided, you know what, I'm just going to work my biceps because nobody can see my core. <laughs> and then he got some truth and he adjusted. Life is not about being perfect. It is about course correcting. And so we look for, we look for clients and companies that can hear hard truth and course correct. That's, that's the way we live well. <laughs> Bob has always been kind of a sun's out, guns out kind of guy, but uh, <laughs> you know, no doubt. Meeting no, him, no. meeting him fourteen years ago, um, fifteen maybe at this really terribly run sales conference outside of Nashville. You know how it is, Jay. You just meet somebody along the way, and you're like, man, I want to watch that guy's career. And uh, you know, that's I think that's why. The two of us have stayed connected. Part of it, I think, I think I pissed him off too at the sales conference because I was voted MVP and he wasn't. But um, how things have changed. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> the uh, but I think we just saw something in each other that was like, okay, we're both here on this sales conference. It sucks, but we're willing to put in the work. And we're willing to self-examine ourselves as many times as it takes. And just when you think you're getting to the top of that mountain and seeing over, let's go right back down the valley and dig our way back out. You know, it's the same thing the way that we've approached this podcast. Like, there's not a lot of people that would get on a phone call right when COVID's hitting because we're, you know, our daily routine's been thrown off. We're freaking out a little bit about what this is going to look like and how are we going to lead the Fort Worth office and how are we going to lead the Chicago office if we can't be in the office? And we just, we just kept talking and talking and working our way through it. And it was like, Hey, we need a creative outlet. We need a, a podcast. Let's start one. Let's where did truth and storytelling go? Let's bring inspirational people on and just allow them to tell their stories. And, you know, I think, I think that's why we're, we're perfect partners to do this together because we're constantly pushing each other. Um, there's not a phone call that we have that Bob in questioning my numbers or saying, you know, whatever, you're not there yet. <laughs> I mean, it's just this, this push all the time. But I expect that out of him and he expects it out of me. One thing you hit on was, was, was yoga. I mean, 
I started doing that very religiously, probably two and a half years ago, three years ago, maybe when my mom got real sick and I just needed, I thought, you know, nothing else is working. I'm going to go try yoga. And it was the first like physical activity, sports oriented, you know, core work, but that also subconsciously, I guess, and maybe you can give some insight in on this for me, brought in a spiritual aspect because I would go places in that hundred plus degree room over 75 minutes in my mind that I couldn't go anywhere else and get this clarity around, you know, my mom is eventually going to heaven. How is that going to work? How can I process through that? But but yoga in that moment of holding this ridiculous pose <laughs> was the only place that I could get that clarity. Can you speak to that at all? Well, no, I can't speak to that because I wasn't inside your head. And so you could speak to that. You can tell us why that hot yoga class had the same effect that hot saunas had on Native Americans. And they would get rituals around going in there and sweating to the point of almost dying to meet their gods. Um, I've never done either of those. So I can't tell you that. I can, I can tell you about what's inside my head and my spiritual journey, but I, I would say you could tell us that story. Or we could study it. Lots of Native cultures have met God when sweating and holding a pose. And I think that's a great thing. I just can't speak to it because I, I, I wasn't there with you. And, you know, I, I believe Anais Nin was crazy, but I love a lot of what she said while she was alive. And I just used this in our team practice today after we had a really good practice that people had all different interpretations of, and it was hysterical how the CEO thought he'd been really clear describing what it was in summary that the vision was. And as I had the five or six teammates, just five or six out of the 15 that were there playback what they heard their CEO say, they all heard it different. And he was looking at me like, what is wrong with these people? And I looked back at him and I said, you're not clear. And you need to be clear. This is not something wrong with them. It's not clear what you said. And just remember this. This is why I teach my clients to speak clear, concise, and direct. This client takes too long to say anything. And so they get confused. And so Anais then said this, we don't see things the way they are. We see things the way we are. We don't hear things the way they're said. We hear things with what's in our head. Because that's what filters it. And so your spiritual experience in yoga was yours because of the way you were when you got hot. And you could describe it. We, we can't. And we probably wouldn't understand it if you did. No, but that gives me a lot to think about. I mean, I've, I've been trying to figure out the, the why of that experience and why I consistently go back to it, you know, when I need it. I would tell you to write about it more. That's great. I appreciate it. And the more you write about it, you think, when you think about it, start to write your thoughts. Because when we just think about stuff like, I wonder why that hit me so much. 
we get actually a little more depressed over time because it's called ruminating. When we have something like that moment in yoga and we spiritually thought about a loved one, go write your thoughts down. The more you write them out, the more you'll start to see clarity over time of, that's why it hit me so much. This is what it means. This is what I'm taking from that. And writing is where clarity comes. Too many humans think thinking about it is where clarity comes. It's not true. It's never been true in the history of time. I mean, that's why we see stuff on caves. They were trying to get clear. And they started drawing shit on the frickin' walls. <laughs> and it's been like this ever since. We, so we started writing books and telling stories because we didn't want to just keep all these things in our head. Yeah. We're meant to get them out. That makes sense? Crystal clear. Thank you. <laughs> we might have a new client for you, Chet. No, this is this is just incredibly intriguing. I really I really appreciate it. Um, one question that came to mind, just because this this has been a journey of of Bob and I's through kind of the world being pivoted a little bit uh, with not truly understanding how global we are in our supply chain. Just how quickly COVID disrupted everything. So if you think about this this sort of moment in time, you know what are you seeing with the the pivot and the leaders that you work with? How are they thinking through this? What are some tidbits that you've learned along the way in, in your teachings? Well, I have a very skewed view because if you ask me, how are my clients handling it? I would tell you exactly the way I would expect them to. There's a reason why we've been working on their core and their opus and their productive action for years. And I always tell them, it's to prepare you for a moment of truth. I don't know when it's coming. You don't either. But we all have moments of truth. And they come oftentimes when we least expect them. So there's another word people call this the crucible. And the time to be prepared for a moment of truth, the crucible, or the storm is not when you're in it. And so my clients have been preparing. I have clients facing extinction. You know, one owns hotel chains. They went from 99% occupancy before the lockdown. The day before they closed up, they had one person in the 238-bedroom world-class hotel. One room. They're facing extinction. I have another one who collects debt for a living. They almost got shut down by the government because they're shutting down. They don't want you to have to pay your bills. Another one that builds up, you know, apartments in retail space that you don't have to pay your rent. It can't evict anybody. And if you were to sit with me and these clients in our practice which they're doing, it wouldn't seem any different than it would have been six months ago when every one of those clients was flying high as a kite. I mean, like, through the roof. And so that's the value of preparing before the storm. Now, if I were to tell you what I see in the world, it's the opposite of that. I see a lot of people looking for a hack, a short way around, trying to take a pill, they're, they're losing their mind 
because they haven't done any of the hard work. And now all of a sudden they're facing a monumental climb and they've not been used to doing hard things and learning to do hard things well. So now all of a sudden they've gone from being fat and just living in a surplus to looking at the freaking desert and going, holy shit, nobody told me this could happen. And so they're trying to muster up inner reserves. Very difficult. You know, the old ancient Romans had a saying, and it's attributed to an old general, but it says, we don't rise to the occasion. We sink to the level of our training. I totally believe in that. So I have a bunch of clients that have been training. They're not going to go extinct. I don't believe a single one of them will, but they're facing it. And my one client, who collects debt for a living. They just had a record month. So they had a hiccup when they had to send everybody home. And within two months, they have a new, they've been in business 20 years. They just set a new all-time record last month. And nobody's in the office. And they're collecting debt. They collect debt for a living. And they are crushing it. So I tell people, don't waste a good crisis. You know, my client that, one of my other clients, you know, that's in another one that's going extinct, they have enough, they've been prepared, they have enough capital reserves because they were not leveraged, which is another one of my things. I tell everybody, one of the best ways to prepare for a downturn is to not be in a debt burdened situation. Every one of my clients hears me preach about the dust bowl and the depression every day and say, you will not go extinct if when the dust bowl comes or the depression comes, you have cash and gold. You will die if you have debt up to your eyeballs. So none of my clients have a debt load that they can't weather the storm. And so many of them will be going out and making strategic acquisitions and purchases because it's a sad state, but there'll be many going extinct. And so there's no silver bullet. There's no, it's just a lot of lead bullets. And a lot of lead bullets are learn from this crisis it will not kill you you may be severely damaged but learn from it listener and begin to prepare now for the next one this crisis is not the end of the world it just feels that way but it won't be we're too resilient a little virus is not going to take us out it clearly is a pain in the ass but it's not going to eliminate the human population so prepare for the next storm now and you'll weather it a lot better so that's what i would tell people well that it may have been a good question but that was a way better answer <laughs> <laughs> thank you for that um you know just because it keeps it keeps flowing uh along the theme of of things that that you've said that correlate to things I learned from my grandfather. I love that, uh, you know, it's not a silver bullet, it's lots of lead bullets. I remember hunting with him in uh, in New Mexico and he, you know, there was a, an antelope that was a good one that was maybe just a little bit out of my comfort zone and I didn't take the shot and he looked over me and said, grandson, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. That's always carried with me. That's a good one. It's so true. It's just so true. You know, I, um, I have a son who's a professional poker player. 
and I was I tell this story all the time, but I just told it to a team today, fresh top of mind, and I, I told it in a roundabout way. I asked them to all write down what are the two things that they think are the root contributors to a great life. We were ending the practice, and I said, you know, everybody just write what are the two most important things that will contribute. And they were all, all thinking deep because they've been with me a long time. So everybody was going, well, a good belief system, a strong core. And I'm like, I'm thinking like really surface. Like forget who you're, I'm just saying, don't give me the teacher's answer. Give me your answer. And they were dancing all over. And then I gave, I gave them the answer finally because they were, they, were, they were lost. It's really simple. If you want to know what makes for a quality life, it is the quantity of decisions followed by the quality. If you want to study great lives, they always have a quantity of decisions. When we study great leaders, they make a shit ton of decisions and they make a lot of bad ones. And so they're constantly reevaluating their decision criteria and preparing for the next problem more informed so their quality of decisions goes up. You cannot have an improvement in the quality of your decisions if you don't take a shot. You got to take a shot. You got to make a decision. It sucks. You miss. Stop. Learn. Adjust the site. Take another shot. So great lives are what your grandpa talked about. Take the freaking shot, grandson. You ain't going to get any better just holding that site. We get better by learning from bad decisions. So I'm always telling my clients, make more decisions. My son, professional poker player, I asked him, he's been doing it almost 15 years. He does incredibly well. I said, what's the difference between a pro and an amateur? He said, that's simple. He goes, amateurs wait for the, the quality hand. The pro makes a lot more bets. Quantity of decisions leading to the quality. He goes, pros just play 10,000 games for every one. The amateur plays. The amateur folds because they just keep folding because the hand's not good enough. They don't want to take the shot. The pros know how to make bets. They don't bet a lot. They bet on a lot of hands. That's how you become a pro. And then you have so many chips in your pocket that you can start to play for more per game. That's the, the amateurs just show up and they want to get lucky. They go enter one of their high stakes table with a pro and Jordan eats their lunch. <laughs> Literally. And it's so, so, I mean, to me, what works in poker, which is a great life game, works in life. Quantity, quality, and then a little luck. There's nothing wrong with a little luck. I mean, you know, it's, <laughs> the more quantity you make, the luckier you get. Well, so we probably shot your time up, haven't we? We're gonna we're gonna wrap up. We'll we'll give you kind of the the last question here is, uh, what do you want people to know about Chet Scott and Built to Lead before? Uh, what do you want to leave people with? And obviously, do a plug for the book and and Built to Lead. No, I'm I'm not much of a plugger. Oh, we're going so to plug you. <laughs> I mean, so Built to Lead, they can find out anything they want to know about Built to Lead at builttolead.com. And I write about the work almost every day, and it's free. 
They can go on the blog there and get more than they want. And the book will be called Becoming Built to Lead. When it comes out, if I can get an editor to do your job. You. <laughs> well, we appreciate your time today, Chad. Thank you so much. And uh, we'll have, hopefully have you back on for another one in the, in the weeks and months to come. Sounds good, you guys. Nice, nice to meet you, Michael. Chad, this has been a pure pleasure. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed the time. Yeah, me too. See you, Robert. I'll see you later. All right. Take care. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of The Climb. If you enjoyed the episode, please consider subscribing. And if you know someone who you would think would enjoy the podcast, feel free to share this with them. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode.